We're going to go to Matthew chapter 26. I'll do my absolute best not to cough into the microphone 96 times tonight. Um, But if I do, uh, just ignore it and we'll move on. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 30. Matthew 26 and 30. And when they had sung an hymn, and if anybody reminds me in time tonight, we'll sing an hymn. Uh, See, it's biblical. They didn't, have, they didn't have a whole worship team when they were walking out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus and his disciples just sang. Uh, and if it was good enough for Jesus and his disciples, it's going to be good enough for us here at the Jesus Church on a Wednesday night. Amen. I'll amen my, I'll amen my own self. <laughs> then saith Jesus unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. Now, I'm pretty sure I've had that experience, but I don't know if I ever called it before it happened. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's been a group of people where all of them have been offended because of Jared. uh, And probably even in one night. But Jesus is telling his disciples, his followers, look, you're all going to be offended. You're all going to, to flee me tonight. I will smite the shepherd, it is written, and the flock of the sheep shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Talk about a verbal slapdown. Peter stands up boldly in front of all of the people and says, Jesus, look, even if all of these ten run away, I'll be right here with you. And Jesus looks at him and says, look, before the rooster crows, three times you're going to deny me. Peter said, trying to save some face perhaps, he says, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. And likewise also said all the disciples, we like to rag on Peter, but the the remaining ten, they proclaim the same thing. Yeah, 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 what Peter said. Yeah, yeah, we're all going to die with you. Tonight, with your attention for the next few moments, I want to teach on closing the gap. Closing the gap. The story goes on in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36. Jesus continues to lead them at seems as if he just drops the issue altogether. Instead of proving his disciples wrong, he simply ignores their, 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 their protests and he drives on. And he brings him to a place called Gethsemane and says unto his disciples, why don't you sit here? I'll go and pray yonder. And he takes with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and James and John, that is, and began to be very sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death, tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. It's a model prayer for you and I. It's an example of our perfect Savior. This, this 
sinless flesh is praying itself to the cross. We're kidding ourselves in our daily lives if we, if we think we can get by in this sinful flesh in a prayerless life. This was sinless flesh in a prayerful mindset. And we're trying to be sinful flesh in a prayerless mindset. It is only by much prayer that we're ever going to reach the place where we say, you know what, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Another verbal slapdown from the lips of the master. This man that had just proclaimed hours, moments even before, look, Lord, I'll go with you even to the death. Even if these other ten jokers run away, I'm going to be with you. And yet here he is. Jesus says, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Man, I wish I could go back to sleep that easy. When somebody wakes me up in the middle of the night, it usually takes a while to get back to sleep. But Peter, James, and John, man, they had it going on that night. They were out cold. And so he leaves them. He goes away and prays the third time, saying the same words. You know, I'm thankful for the Bible. <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't bait or anything. I, I'm thankful for the Word of God. I'm also thankful that my faults aren't included in the Bible. That my failures aren't etched into the pages of Scripture for people time without end to read of Jared's greatest moments of failure. In one or two chapters, just hours later, we'll read of Peter's low point in his life where he begins to curse and say, I do not know the man, the master that he's followed for three years in mere moments, he'll be cursing his name. He'll be speaking that name and tying it together with a curse and saying, I don't even know him. I'm thankful that my failures are not etched in the Bible, but I'm thankful that God took the time to write about other people's failures so that you and I can begin to learn from the past and the lives of others. There, there really aren't any heroes in the Bible other than God. Everybody else in Scripture is just a flawed human being that has partnered together with God. We don't need to put Peter up on some higher pedestal. We don't need to put David or, or, or Moses. Though they were great men of God, we have access to God in a greater way than anybody else in the Old Testament did. These are flawed individuals. God is the hero of the Bible. Peter and the other ten disciples, Judas has already gone by this point to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. They demonstrate to us a failure of the flesh that we all possess. Do not make the mistake as you read through Scripture of mocking them and thinking that it could never happen to you. 
We all possess this failure in differing quantity or in differing locations in our lives. It might look different in your life than it looks in my life, but we all have it. And that failure is the gap that exists between our intentions and our actions. We all possess this space between what we have intended in our heart and what we thought in our mind is going to be our course of action and the actual course of action that we chart and we follow. An intention is an act or an instance of determining mentally on some action or result. It was the professed intention of Peter and the other disciples to follow Jesus to whatever end may come, even if it meant death. And boy, it it sounded good in the moment. It sounded noble in the moment. It sounded bold. It sounded courageous in the moment, even to the point where all 11 of them are speaking it. And Jesus doesn't even address it. He he realizes it's pointless for me to try to persuade them. Otherwise, their minds are set on this course of action. But when the time came for that action, the gap appeared. What sounded good and noble and bold in the heat of the moment with the master now cooled in the night air. And Peter, James, and John, these self-proclaimed potential martyrs are sawing logs in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're snoring it up, passed out cold. Oblivious to the fact that their master and leader is praying violently, just a stone's throw away, blood mingling with the sweat on his brow, angels appearing to minister to him. And these men with the best of intentions are fast asleep. It'd be almost comical if it wasn't such a tragedy. It's an unintentional betrayal. Anyone awoken in the middle of the night can tell of the reduced decision-making capacity. Have you ever woken your spouse up in the night and asked them a question or said something to them and just crazy stuff comes out of their mouth? Or children appear at your bedside. Those tiny little 40 and 50 pound toddlers have an incredible ability to appear very spooky in the middle of the night. All of the sudden, somebody's hitting you beside your bed, and you open your eyes, and there's a face in your face. Put yourself in their shoes. They've journeyed. They've walked a great distance. They've heard their leader profess to them that he was going to be killed and rise again. He's washed their feet. They've had a meal. They've shared in a cup. They've instituted a new covenant. They've walked out of the city again singing a hymn. And they are now in the darkness of the garden. Their eyes are heavy. Their body is weary. And they're awakened by the sound of a mob with torches Clubs, spears, and swords. 
Confusion reigns in their mind in the heat of the moment. Peter tries to stand true to what his spoken intention was, but he twists it a little bit. Instead of being prepared to die with Jesus, he decides to try to make somebody else die instead of Jesus. And in in the darkness, he pulls a sword and swings at somebody's head, misses and lops off an ear. Jesus as one of his final miracles before Calvary, or his final miracle before Calvary, heals the ear of somebody arresting him. They flee, they run, they hide. Because promises made in the heat of the moment are hard to fulfill in the still and solitude of the garden. I've done it. You've done it. The Holy Ghost is moving during a powerful service and prayer meeting and a desire or a conviction is laid on our heart or it even comes out of our mouth and we speak and we say, Lord, I'm going to do such and such for you. And then we wake up the next morning and wonder, what did I pledge myself to? The nervous smiles around the room let me know that I'm not the only one that has experienced that phenomenon in the moment. And when the crowd is there and while the, the, the swelling of the anointing is there, we can speak it out with such faith. But when the alarm goes off at five and we've pledged to pray for an hour every morning before work. Suddenly there's a gap. There's often a gap between intentions and actions. And it's in that gap that the weakness of your flesh lies. Let's demonstrate this in the natural. Very few, I wish I could say no one, but there are some people out there. Very few people desire to be obese and to work towards that end. In a few months... People are going to make New Year's resolutions. Gyms are going to fill. New members are going to sign year-long contracts. And January and February are going to be an incredible month to be in the gym business. And really the rest of the year because you've got them locked into a year contract. They do that because they know people are only coming in January and February. And then it's back down to the same 10 muscle-bound morons that are there year-round anyways. The intention was to be in shape, to reach a healthy weight, to be physically fit, to be able to see your toes while standing upright, to be able to touch your toes, to not keel over from a heart attack while walking through the aisles of Walmart. That's the intention of virtually everybody. Nobody wants to be 700 pounds. But there's a gap that exists between intent and action. The action is we sleep too little, we eat too much, and we avoid exercise like it's the plague. The intention is to be a football superstar. And then when we require the action, look at the level of discipline required for these men to put their bodies on the line like that. Every week, week in, week out, the 
hours of film study, the hours of exercise, the carefully controlled dietary regimen, both in the season and in the off-season, the hundreds of thousands of dollars that these men spend on massages and physical therapy and, 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 and different methodologies to try to protect their body. And all of the sudden, we come to a realization that really this Reese's is a lot more appetizing. Ironically, I was eating a Reese's well. Preparing this. There's a gap that exists between what we intend and what we actually do. Let's take it to the end of the argument spiritually. Very few people will intentionally miss heaven. There are some people out there whose consciences have been seared, whose hearts have been completely swayed and turned, and, and they, they think in this life that they're okay with going to hell. But for the most part, people's intention is, I'm going to go to heaven. And yet every day, our actions are carrying us either closer or further to that goal, regardless of what our intentions are. Certainly you've heard the, the old saying, I, I tried to find the source of it, but really it's so old, nobody knows the full source. The, some of the earliest references are in the 1600s. But the saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Have you ever been to a funeral where it was just blatantly stated that, yeah, man, he, he didn't go to heaven. That was not a good person. That dude, mm. somehow at a funeral, even if there's very little, we find that shred of good in that person and we just magnify that. We put that on a pedestal, we pump it up, we talk about it to the end and somehow everybody goes to heaven. That's the intention. That's the desire of our lives. We're not waking up in the morning and saying, man, this would be a great day to go to hell. Nobody, well, very few people are waking up with that mindset. But how many are living the action required to make that intention a reality? Jesus said in Matthew 7 and 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the way, or the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. If there's an intention in the heart of virtually all of humanity, and yet few there be that find it, certainly there's a gap that we possess. You know, often we're more merciful with ourselves and our own faults because we judge others based on the actions we see them carry out. And we judge ourselves based on our good intentions. It's, it's easy for me to look at so-and-so's failure and be like, well, man, that's, that's just sad. It's a lot harder for me to look at my failures. The human instinct is to go back because we know the intention. We can go back and say, well, it didn't work out the way that I planned, but that's not what I planned. My intentions were good. Good intentions aren't going to be enough to help us to cross through a pearly gate. Good intentions are not going to be enough to help us to engage in spiritual warfare, to, to, to 
fulfill the great commission. Wow. To fulfill the great commission to advance the kingdom of God. Good intention will not be enough. At some point, that bridge has to come between intention and action. And we actually have to put some leather to it. And we have to put some sweat equity to it and begin to do the things that we've intended. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says the word of God is quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You see, it's this word that will begin to dive down inside of us. It's, it's the word of God that will begin to lay bare our failures, our flaws, and our shortcomings. And only the Word is going to be able to slice. It's going to be able to cut away. It's going to be able to pull down the facade that everybody else looks at. And when you're reading the Word and you're talking to the Lord, the Lord sees the thoughts and the intents of your heart that nobody else can see. He can see what's really going on on the inside. He can see the motive. He can see the best laid plans that you've got and what you want the day to become. He can strip away every front that you put up to everybody else and God can see all the way down to the inner you. Jesus told his disciples this, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's in this gap, again, that the flesh dwells. We want to have a powerful prayer life. Does anybody want to have a powerful prayer life? Does anybody have a powerful prayer life? <laughs> See? Now, I, I would say yes. People in this room are men and women of prayer. There are powerful prayer warriors in this room. But we all just demonstrated the gap that we know we possess. Because only you know the level of prayer that God is calling you to. And only you are familiar with your obedience to that call of God. God never gives us a minimum and says, thou must pray 30 minutes a day. He could have easily done that. He could have said it right in this sentence. Could you not watch with me one hour? If thou dost not pray one hour a day, Peter, thou wilt be lost. He could have said that, but he didn't. But the Spirit of God is working on each and every heart in this place. And you know, and I know, what level God is calling and drawing us to. And you know, and I know, what level of action we're responding with. We want to fulfill the Great Commission. Does anybody want to fulfill the Great Commission? How many are fulfilling the Great Commission? Again, I, I don't, don't beat yourselves up. We are, but we find ourselves distracted. We want to work for the kingdom of God, but we find ourselves constantly tired and overburdened. Intention falls to the wayside and flesh steps into action. Spiritually, we slumber and sleep. It would be foolish for us to proclaim, I am going to start out red hot for God for the first five years, and then I'm just going to slowly cool into an ice cube by the time I die. That'd be ridiculous. That'd be foolish. And yet it's the fact for so many. 
because our actions speak that, though our intention has never changed. I have no other answer for you than what Jesus gave. Watch and pray. The answer to the weakness of this flesh is found in diligence and discipline. This flesh is soft and weak. Everybody poke yourself and say soft and weak. That was one of the most fun things I've ever done. It's almost paradoxical. Because of this flesh's great weakness, for many it's very strong. Because of its tendency and uh, predilection towards sin, it, it is in fact strong in too many lives. It's leading many towards sin. To watch, it's the Greek word, Gregorio, it means to keep awake, to be vigilant, to be watchful. The Romans divided the night into four separate watches. Not like four wristwatches, four periods of time in which you stood watch. You were responsible for standing guard. Everybody else was asleep, but you were awake. Anyone inside the camp or the tent or the fortress, they were asleep and they were counting on the man on the wall to be awake and to be watching. They were vulnerable. They were open to attack, but the man on the wall stood watch. That's what Jesus is calling his disciples to. There's a world behind us that is asleep. There's a world behind us that is vulnerable. There's a world behind us that is easily moved and swayed by the wiles of the devil. But there's a church that's standing watch. There's a church that has planted their feet and said, no, no, we're not going to be lulled into sleep by the, 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 the actions of this world. We're not going to be lulled into this false sense of security. Somebody has to man the wall with sword in hand and watch. Military law allowed, even encouraged punishment for those found sleeping on their watch. It's not fun and it's not easy, but it is a duty. Second Timothy two and three says this. Now, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. There's a verse we don't shout about a whole lot. Man, if the if the seating's too hard or the temperature's not right, we won't go any further. I, I have a hard time imagining the church on in Ephesus where Timothy is complaining about seating or building temperature. Not this that's not a shot, and nobody's complained to me about seating or building temperature. We have it really good. We have it so good. We probably have it too good. Too good. Therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You mean, God, you expect me to get up every morning and pray? Yes. That's hardness. You're a soldier. 
You're not a retiree in some gated village just waiting for God to come back and take you through a pearly gate. No, you're a soldier. You've put the armor on. You're standing guard on the wall. You've got a shield in one hand. You've got a sword in the other, or at least we're supposed to. We're supposed to be enduring hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. The next verse says, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Are you living up to your commanding officer's expectation? Now, I'm not the commanding officer. He's the one that chose me to be a soldier. And my goal is to please him by enduring hardness, by enduring difficulty. The Roman soldier was expected to be able to march up to 20 miles a day while carrying up to 60 pounds of gear. That's hardness. That's where that saying, uh, if, if somebody compels you to go with him one mile, go with him twain. A Roman soldier could grab anybody on the side of the road and force them to carry their gear for a mile. But Jesus said, just go with them that extra mile. In reality, now you're two miles away from where you started, so you're walking four miles. But Paul is speaking to a level of hardness, a level of discipline, a level of diligence. There was great effort and great training put into becoming a Roman soldier. You didn't just hop up out of bed and grab a sword and a shield. And you certainly aren't going to just hop up out of bed when the moment calls for it and grab a spiritual sword and shield and just dive into battle. You can try, but you'll probably, just like in the natural, be slaughtered. But a soldier that disciplines the flesh and fights the battle every single day to train and to be diligent and to be alert and to be watching. When that day and that moment of battle comes, uh, that armor fits well. It's That sword feels natural in the hand. That shield is just, you know what to do with it. You know where the enemy's going to be and you know how to use a sword skillfully. Your flesh is weak. My flesh is weak. We will fold at the first opportunity. If you've ever been called to midnight prayer, the moment you hit that minimum time that somehow we all decide, like, okay, I'm going to go at least 30 minutes, 29 minutes in. We're like, come on, one more minute. I can do this. 30 minutes. I'm done. Good night, Lord. Your flesh will fold at the first opportunity. Diligent watching coupled with prayer will begin to observe the warning signs and alert you to upcoming danger and alert you to upcoming difficulty. Watch and pray. Prayer. This is in itself a battle. Again, everybody in this room would probably proclaim a desire to be a man or a woman of prayer. I want to be somebody that God can trust with a burden of prayer that's going to respond quickly and with ferocity and with intensity. But the flesh is weak and your enemy knows to fight you hard here. You're not the only one fighting a battle for prayer. 
But you either fight that battle for daily prayer or you will fight a hundred other battles because you've lost that battle. If you can discipline and, and make your flesh to pray daily, to pray a sacrificial prayer daily, you will overcome a hundred other battles that you don't even need to fight or be involved in. Why? Because you have closed a gap and you are alert and you are awake. The enemy will fight you very hard at this, 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 this place of prayer. Don't kid yourself. If you cannot pray every day or you will not pray every day, you're not fighting the battle. You're losing the battle. Without daily prayer, we don't have power. Without daily discipline of pursuit after God and putting our flesh on that altar, we are succumbing to the weakness of the flesh over and over and over. But you can bake the discipline and the diligence right into your life. You can decide through the hardness that you're enduring as a soldier, I will pray. I will pray. Not only will I pray, I will pray fervently. Not only will I just meet some minimum time threshold, but I will make up in my mind to pray until the flesh is subdued and submitted and I'm walking in the will of God. You can make up in your mind to, to discipline this nasty carcass, this flesh, and make it to listen and make it to obey. If you will watch and you will pray, there's a gap that will begin to close between intention because the more you pray, the more you want to pray. The more you walk with Jesus, the more you want to walk with Jesus. The longer you stand on the wall and you begin to see things because you're a praying person and God begins to point out dangers to you, it becomes almost addicting. It becomes like being in the cockpit of a plane with the Lord. And now you're not just in the back somewhere flying along. You're with him and you're getting to watch it all unfold. That's what God is calling us Got a number of verses here, and I think I'm going to skip some of them, but Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11 says this, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. You are not accidentally going to stumble into heaven. I've ended up in some amazing places accidentally. Perhaps you've been on a road trip, took a wrong turn, and found a great restaurant. But heaven is not going to function that way. Nobody's going to accidentally get there. It will take a life of diligence and discipline. It will take a life that is focused and intentional about reaching that place. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. This is my great assurance in all of this. My flesh is weak. Even tonight, we could, we could build up this great emotion we could we could feel the presence of god together in the in the presence of the crowd we could all make a pledge and a commitment and say i'm going to pray 2 hours a day 
But our flesh is weak. The first day you wake up with a scratchy throat, or maybe a kid keeps you up at night, and you're like, well, the Lord understands. Our flesh is weak, but we have help. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. It's such a one-sided relationship sometimes that there have been moments where I ask God if he's even getting anything out of this. God, what are you getting out of the deal? He says, wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. By the way, this, this is good for us. We, we need that mindset. We need that thought process. There should be a level of reverence and awe, a trembling that comes over us when we consider the fact that God has made available to us eternal salvation. There's work, there's effort required behind it. Again, you're not going to accidentally find yourself in front of a pearly gate or waltzing down a street of gold. But the next verse says this, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's read it. Let's read it again in the New Living Translation, because I love this verse. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Are you not thankful for the baptism of the Holy Ghost that God would put inside of you not only the desire, not only the intention, but he'll also give you the power to fulfill those intentions that he put inside of you? Your flesh is weak, but your flesh needs to be crucified and out of the way. And then the spirit man and the spirit of God living inside of us has been empowered to fulfill the intention that God has put inside of you. That desire of prayer that you feel calling you, you already possess the power to live up to that desire because God has already put it inside of you. All that remains is for you to grab this flesh and to bring it down and to sacrifice it on an altar of prayer and God will begin to give you the power to do what pleases him. That, that level of soul winning and disciple making that you feel called to and you feel like is your mission, you feel like it's your purpose, you already possess the power. God gave you the desire and he's promised to give you the power to do what pleases him. Now it just comes down to do. You've got to close that gap between intention and action. And the only way I know how to do that is through watching and praying. Getting up, forcing this flesh to do what this flesh does not want to do. There are two hallmarks of a disciple. Self-denial and self-discipline. I don't stand before you as somebody that's got that completely figured out. Again, I was eating a Reese's as I typed these notes. Man, I'd love to be more physically fit. I ran up the stairs today and then had to pause for a moment because I got lightheaded. But if I'm not willing to put the action in to fulfill that desire, then it's just a wish. 
Ecclesiastes 5 and 3 says this as we all stand together. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business. And a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. A dream cometh through a multitude of business. And a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. I've been guilty of it. Perhaps you have as well. We set a goal. We talk about the goal. We proclaim the goal. And then it stops. We never do anything about the goal. Talking about the goal provided us with just enough dopamine release to make us feel like we were actually doing something. But nothing ever happened. There's no shortcut for you to become that powerful man or woman of prayer. There's no shortcut for you to become that powerful man and woman of God that you desire to be. There's only action. The multitude of business. There's only you early in the morning or late at night when everybody else is slumbering. There's only you watching and enduring hardness as a good soldier. Now, I'm not saying you should sleep two hours a day and, and, and should pray eight hours a day. I think we could flip those two numbers a little bit and, and be just fine. But I am saying, what's the gap? What level of desire do you have and where are your actions in regard to this? We've got to close that gap. Or else we're no better than Peter, James, and John. Jesus, I'll go with you to the death right after I finish this YouTube video. Jesus, I'll, I'll, I'll teach so many Bible studies for you, but I'm kind of too scared to go and introduce myself to that person. When we took a quick quiz of the audience, there was an uncomfortable silence that filled this room. Again, don't misinterpret me. I think in this room are powerful men and women of prayer, consecration, dedication. But each and every one of us without pause or without fail paused because each and every one of us was able in that moment to assess that gap. What is God calling me to and what am I doing? Really only you and the Lord can answer that question. You can fool me. Unless God reveals it to me by the power of the Holy Ghost, you, you can fool me. I'm not that bright. It'd be pretty easy. You can look busy. You can, you can look like you, you could worship. You can dance. You could, you, could get, you could check all the boxes. But only you know if you're doing what God has called you to do. And only I know if I'm fulfilling God's purpose and call for my life. And anything else is less than our best.